0: Hey there, I'm Osman Faruqi, the host of The Drop, a weekly culture show from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, where we dive into the latest in the world of pop culture and entertainment. In October 2017, the New York Times published a story accusing Harvey Weinstein, then one of the most powerful people in Hollywood, of numerous instances of sexual harassment, stretching back over three decades.
1: The New York Times alleges that Harvey Weinstein is guilty of decades of sexual harassment. This in an expose they just published hours ago. The 3,200 word article.
0: That report helped ignite a global reckoning and contributed to the rise of the Me Too movement, a movement that rapidly spread across Hollywood and throughout broader society.
1: Me Too. Me Too. It happened to me too. And it happened to me too. This is my story. An untold
2: number of women posted Me Too and revealed their deeply intimate experiences of abuse. Their stories flooded social media
0: and... After the Times published its story on Weinstein, more than 80 women publicly accused him of sexual harassment or assault
2: morning, George. Six accusers took the stand against Harvey Weinstein at his trial, and some 80 other women have made allegations of misconduct against him. Yesterday's verdict was certainly a watershed moment for those involved in the Me Too movement, and many say this is just the beginning. In
0: 2020, he was convicted of rape in a New York court and sentenced to 23 years in prison. He's currently awaiting trial on further charges in Los Angeles. The two journalists who broke the Weinstein story, Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor, published a book about the complicated and incredibly stressful process of reporting a story like this. They revealed new details, like the key role Gwyneth Paltrow played behind the scenes. The book, she said, has just been adapted into a movie starring Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan as Megan Toohey and Jodi Cantor. It arrives in cinemas this week.
1: Why is sexual harassment so pervasive and so hard to address? Let's
2: interrogate the whole system. Hi, my name is Jody Cantor. I'm an investigative reporter for the New York Times. What have you got? I was told that the wrongdoing in Hollywood is overwhelming.
0: I'm very excited to be joined on this episode of The Drop by Megan and Jody to talk about their reporting and the process of turning it into a film. Megan and Jody, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: We're happy to be with you. Thanks for having us.
0: The beginning of the film focuses on your reporting, Megan, on Donald Trump and the accusations about his treatment of women in the lead-up to the 2016 election. Several women speaking out, accusing Donald Trump of touching them inappropriately. The two women telling The New York Times they came forward after watching Trump deny ever assaulting women at Sunday's debate. Have you ever done those things? have respect for me, and I will tell you, no, I have not. The Trump campaign. I know this might sound counterintuitive, but after watching the film start with that, I wonder how significant a moment his eventual election was to breaking the Harvey Weinstein story. I mean, so much of what you reported on had been swirling around for years, but did it take something that extreme to create, I guess, a kind of impetus for all the necessary things to happen that helped bring that story to life?
2: I think that you're right that the you know the election of Donald Trump, um, in spite of the numerous allegations of sexual misconduct against him, was a moment at least in this country where we kind of had to pause and ask ourselves: Is you know do we care about these issues? Is this something that's as of con- you know of concern to us? And I think that the at the time it really felt like the answers were mixed. And listen obviously there were a lot of factors that went into people's decisions of whether or not to vote for Trump. So I'm not suggesting that it was like a single, just this issue of his treatment of women that was on the ballot. But I think we saw you know, in the thousands of women who took to the streets, the tens of thousands of women who took to the streets, that there was real outrage, that there was a sense that there was no accountability around these issues.
0: Today, the day after Donald Trump became their president, they
2: chanted. They urged. We got this. Keep on coming. They shouted. And they waved every insult they could muster. This is what democracy looks like pink caps, mocking. And I think that that started to set the stage for what happened in you know the over the following year and it wasn't just trump i mean within a matter of months our colleagues broke the story of bill o'reilly who along with fox had ended up paying tens of millions of dollars to silence women who had come forward with allegations against him
1: to O'Reilly's ouster began two weeks ago with the New York Times investigation, revealing that five women, including guests and employees of his show, had been paid $13 million in settlements involving sexual harassment claims against him
0: over the years. Fox hired
1: And
2: I think that you started to see some motivations uh, with some women who had been victims themselves of other powerful figures who were hungry for accountability and that story had a huge impact. I mean, Bill O'Reilly was fired uh, from Fox, something that had seemed totally unthinkable before. We begin tonight with the bombshell announcement from Fox News that their biggest star is out amid growing reports of sexual harassment that sparked an advertiser revolt. Bill O'Reilly, the anchor of the cable network's most popular show, will not be returning after a two-decade run. Announcement. And so that was really a moment at The New York Times where, like, editors and reporters came together and asked a question that now seems pretty quaint, which is, you know, are there other powerful men who have engaged in predatory behavior um, and have covered their tracks? And that actually set in motion not just the Weinstein investigation, but a variety of reporting into sexual harassment across a variety of industries.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think the the film, like the book, does a really good job of just reminding us of the timeline of events that occurred. I mean, speaking of the book, the first time I read it, and I presume a lot of people had this experience, the first thought that came to mind is this would be a really gripping film to watch. Um, but I wonder for, for, for both of you, maybe for you in particular, Jody, as real life characters involved, once the story gets optioned, Any kind of like doubt or anxiety or nerves that kick in when when you start thinking about how to transform this for the big screen?
1: You know, it was less about our own vanity and more about the responsibility inherent in telling this story. These filmmakers set a really big task for themselves. They are returning the Weinstein story to his own medium. They're balancing all of these characters, these women with really sensitive stories, you know, the institution of the New York Times, which has never really been represented in a feature film. And they're doing so at a time when it feels like the truth is collapsing. And so, you know, we didn't think that much at first about the film adaptation because we were just really focused on getting the book right. I mean, remember, we were writing this book just as the criminal proceedings for Weinstein were beginning to get underway. And so, When it did come time to start having serious meetings with the producers, you know, the discussion was honestly less about our characters. We felt like we had to trust them on that front. And we also knew that, like, look, there's some movieization that happens in that process. And I think it was much more about the integrity of the story and the legacy of this investigation. And was it going to be upheld in the right way. And that's what we're so thrilled about with this film. I mean, the kind of sincerity and power of the journalism really comes through. Our job is to get people more confident in telling the truth. And our hope is that the, the film will actually aid in that process.
0: The The film really does follow a lot of the same narrative arcs as the book. In fact, a lot of the the key scenes are word-for-word word reconstructions. I mean, maybe the, an email becomes a phone call because it's more dynamic to listen to people talk than it is to see them uh, read words on a screen. It's obviously a big process. It's a big creative team that comes together to make a, a film like this. While you guys have agency over the book, you're now working with directors, screenwriter and Rebecca Lenkowitz actors was it a collaborative process? Did, did you did you guys have chats with Rebecca or or with the actors Zoe and Kerry, or did you just kind of hand it off to them and they made this thing?
2: There there certainly was a like a turning over of our book and our material to these filmmakers, and we had to. In some ways, we had to let go and we had to let them um, make the film as they saw it. Um, At the same time, we were really grateful that they did do a lot of consulting with us along the way, starting with the producers, uh, Dee. Gardner and Jeremy Kleiner came to New York. They spent time with us. They came into the New York Times. Uh, same with Rebecca Lankowitz, the screenwriter. She, you know, spent time with us at the New York Times. She came to our homes and spent time with our families. And that extended all the way through Carrie and Zoe. When it was t- when they after they had been cast, I think that there are some actors who prefer not to um, interact with the real life people that they are depicting. Uh, on screen. And that was not the case with these two women. Um, they spent a lot of time, uh, but first on sort of Zoom phone calls and then in person. Carrie relocated to Brooklyn uh, when they were filming this movie and our kids had playdates and went to camp together. And it was clear that they were, you know, they spent a lot of time researching us and observing us. And I think that that was something that was very comforting to us was to see all of the research that went in to these depictions on screen.
0: I find movies about journalism so interesting because so much of what we do in our job is interior, right? It's like sitting in front of a screen in a CMS uh, and you know this—the this, climax of this film—it's not really a spoiler because it's a real story—is hitting—is hitting publish on, you know, on the internal CMS, which I'm not sure I've ever seen before. It's not quite the same as seeing like the printing presses go, like like in Spotlight or something. But um, you know, it, it's it's phone calls, it's meeting people for lunch—that's so much of what your book captures. That sort of day-to-day, sometimes I guess quite mundane but vitally important grind of journalism. With a story like this, I imagine that there would be like a a risk in wanting to over-dramatize things, like what makes a really exciting thriller or, or movie. I wonder whether there are like certain tropes or examples in journalism films you were cautious of, like or how much you thought or had a say in, how much you wanted this to be focused on, what journalism really is, just trying to talk to people versus what Hollywood can sometimes make it be.
1: That's such an interesting question. I mean, so there are two things... Look, we're definitely not film authorities and not even – I wouldn't say we're authorities on journalism films either. But from our point of view, there are two things – at least two – but two really distinct things about this movie come to mind. One is that you really you, – you do get these beautiful portraits of the sources – it's less about sort of recreating, you know, the original horrors of their contacts with Weinstein, which are dealt with very glancingly. It's about looking at these women in their maturity years later as they're faced with this difficult decision of, do I help these journalists, even though there might be a real risk in doing so? And, you know, and there, there, I think there's so much respect in the filmmakers Choices there, and even maybe really a a message to Hollywood, because women like Laura Madden and Zelda Perkins, they were kind of like taken out with the trash in Hollywood. These were assistants who nobody knew, they didn't make a lot of money, and then they were silenced, you know? And whether it was legally or otherwise, they really couldn't share these stories with other people. And so to me, it's a really bold, grand, beautiful gesture to put them up on screen, and this time with the dignity and sensitivity that they were never given the first time around. And then the second one is showing our personal lives as journalists. You know, that's not something that Megan or I had really talked about, but the the number of realistic displays of working parenthood in film, we've discovered is kind of surprisingly small. When you try to list films that are driven by two female characters who have realistic and whole lives and who are dealing with something challenging in their professional pursuits, like the list is really small. I mean, we thought of Hidden Figures as a recent example, but we kind of had a scrounge, you know, to name other films that do that. And so, you know, I love... The scenes of, you know, Zoe, uh, you know, dealing with the two actors who play with my daughters less because it's like exactly what happened, you know, word for word. Those scenes are very slightly fictionalized, but more because I think they capture something bigger, which is there's real grace and beauty in this attempt to be true both to your professional ambitions and your personal life.
0: Yeah, and there's the extraordinary, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it, the scene, um, Megan, where, where Carrie Mulligan's at the, I think, gynecologist and, and, and taking difficult phone calls. That's not something you would see in all the president's men. And like you said, Jody, it'd be so easy to not include that, but it adds something real that shows what it's like being a working woman trying to break a story like that.
2: Yeah, and listen, this is something. This is another. This is another part of the big leap of this film for me and Jody, which is that we've talked about our work, we've written about our work, but we've never talked publicly about our home lives. We've never talked about um, our experience as working mothers, and so there was actually a conversation with the filmmakers about that. Were we willing to have that be depicted and including, you know, this movie depicts like the postpartum depression I experienced after my daughter was born um, in between the reporting on Trump and then coming back into the newsroom to join Jody on the Weinstein investigation. And You know, I will admit that I felt like a little vulnerable um, having that depicted at the same time. The more that women can see realistic depictions of um, ourselves on screen, both in the challenging parts, but also in the um, triumphant parts, uh, the better. And I think that, you know, I wish when I was experiencing (laughs) the postpartum depression, I just wish that there had been more examples of it that I could draw on because... Yes, it was a very difficult time in my life, but at the same time, and, you know, there's a scene in the movie where Carrie playing... Megan um, comes back to the newsroom after her maternity leave and you can even see the way that she like yanks open the door back into the mm. newsroom you can see her coming back into like regaining her son- sense of self and the important role that work plays for her and her identity and herself and so i think that um at the end of the day even though we felt a bit vulnerable in 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 allowing the filmmakers to to capture some of that within this movie. I think our hope is that, you know, that working mothers and just women in general will recognize themselves in that.
0: Mm. No, thank you for sharing that. Jody. you mentioned the um, representation of kind of sources and how fleshed out that is in this movie. One of the other group of sources that the movie and, and your reporting relied quite heavily on were, I guess, people closer to Weinstein himself, people in his camp. And there's a scene towards the end of the movie where you're building a relationship with Weinstein's accountant. And there's, there's, it cuts from you and Megan talking about you needing to send uh, an email to like get this guy across the line. We don't really know what's in the email, but then when you chat to him, we realize that you are drawing on this shared connection that you both have with grandparents who survived the Holocaust, that sort of kind of shown rather than said explicitly. It's one of the things about journalism I find so fascinating is how often to get people across the line requires you to find something in common, often with people who are on the totally wrong side and you're trying to expose. How did you find that in this story where the people you're trying to convince and build a relationship with have spent most of their career covering for or at least being aware of some pretty heinous things?
1: It's such a great question. And in some ways it was a reversal because Weinstein had tried to do that to me. I mean, repeatedly, he had tried to like sort of talk to me Jew to Jew or would have his representatives mention that he had made Holocaust movies. They had clearly looked up my background, knew that I was the grandchild of survivors. And, you know, I like... I just reacted professionally to that. I wasn't, you know, I was never going to get into a fight with Harvey Weinstein. That would have been a huge tactical mistake. But under the surface, I found it pretty offensive. He was taking something so sacred, and then using it to try to manipulate me. Oh, and by the way, I mean, he was also hiring these Israeli spies to try to dupe me at the same time he was telling me what a great Jew he was. So, you know, figure that one out. But with Irwin, it was really sincere. I think it was not manipulative. We had this crazy thing in common, which is that there's this, it's so funny trying to, like, paint this. World for an Australian podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, you talk about the cat-cat skills. I didn't really understand what that was, but I just felt like a shared experience of some sort.
1: God, I mean, this, this tiny group of very modest summer bungalow colonies. I mean, think like one-room cabin, not lavish summer home um, The Jews had gone to in the mountains north of New York for decades because they weren't accepted at like, you know, the fancy country clubs in the Hamptons. But by the time my grandparents got there, a lot of other Jews had moved on, but the Holocaust survivors and Irwin's parents, they were like, they weren't the fancy Jews, right? They were like the desperate, washed up Jews. And so they would go to these little summer communities where they created this world that Irwin and I had both been a part of as children. And... I showed him pictures of some of the restaurants and cafes we'd each gone to as children. My uncle was, like, sending them to me on the sly without knowing why. And, you know, I, I did ask him whether his family ever talked about what happened, because Holocaust survivors do generally come in two types, the you know, the ones who talk and the ones who don't. But what I was sort of getting at too, not just through the Holocaust analogies, was that it wasn't too late for him to do something. Yes, he had been part of something bad. Yes, he had looked the other way for a time. But, you know, part of what was interesting is that since, since 2014, Erwin had felt a great sense of alarm about Weinstein's dealing with women's. And he had tried to do things internally that hadn't worked. So I had gotten to him at a point where he was kind of desperate, you know, to, to, to finally take action. And the trick with him and with some other people in that category is persuading them that it's not too late, that the ball game isn't over, that even if they wish they had acted sooner, they still had the chance to do the defining thing that would stop Weinstein. And that was the case I was making to Irwin.
0: Thanks for explaining that. I mean, I already said it was one of my favorite bits. I think there's so many moments in this film where it's it's sure there's some dramatic license taken and you see these pieces fall together and these aha moments, but then taking a step back and realizing, oh no, these are real conversations. These things happen. And as a journalist, really inspiring to watch. Um, maybe to to round out the conversation, I'm really interested in, in both of your thoughts on how you feel about these sorts of issues and and the challenges journalists have reporting them 5 years on from from the initial story in in australia We have a particularly difficult set of defamation laws that make it very, very, very hard to report on things that haven't been proven in court. Um, I I worked in a series last year that looked at what we called the rise and the fall in Australia of the Me Too movement, where there was this flurry of reporting that has since been kind of kneecapped by very powerful men using lawyers and the courts to shut things down. And of course, this is not me kind of criticizing any journalists or news outlets, but more about the, I guess, like kind of macro level conversation about harassment in the workplace, the lack of power so many women have, and what role journalism can play. Do you you feel optimistic? Do you feel like things have slowed down a bit since then, or do you think we're just getting started?
2: Yeah, well, listen, I think the truth is, is that um, five years isn't a very long time. I mean, when and you just have to remember that when Jody and I were doing this reporting, we were continuously told by Hollywood executives and other people that nobody was going to even if we were able to do this story and publish it, that nobody was going to care and that nothing would change. And wow, were they wrong? From like the moment we pressed publish on the story, you know, our phones and our emails were flooded with other women who were com- coming forward with their own stories of abuse and harassment. You know, not just in Hollywood, but in all different professions and all different walks of life around the world. And so, to watch the dam break and to see so many people step forward, um, it became like a sort of <laughs> like a journalism, you know, a group. Journalism project um, across news organizations. Um, you know, women obviously took to social media to just tell their stories directly. There was a moment after, like a couple of weeks after the story had broken when I finally like went on Facebook and I could see my own, like, sort of former colleagues and friends and my family who were um sharing their own experiences under the Me Too hashtag. Like, you know, it brought tears to my eyes. And I don't think that anybody could have predicted. How widespread this problem was turned out to be, and also um, how much, at the end of the day, people did genuinely care. And like, does that mean that five years later everything's been solved and everything has been fixed? Uh, no, and you know, obviously that that has not taken place. And listen, Jody and I are always very clear to make the distinction that we are not activists, we're not advocates. Um, you know, it's not our job to solve the problems that we help expose. But we also really maintain that you can't solve a problem that you can't see. And so as journalists, like we are very committed to continuing to unearth the facts. And, you know, as you pointed out, that can mean the truth about defamation suits, which have no, you know, there's no doubt that those have become a tool uh, that have like a prominent tool um, in recent years to try to suppress the truth and and kind of gag people from uh, sharing their experience. And so um, it's clear that there's a lot more work to be done, but I also think we also believe that that there is a lot of evidence of meaningful change. And I think as reporters, I think we're going to just continue to You know, we don't have a magic wand that can sort of solve all of these issues. We've just got the power of the pen and we're going to continue to use it.
0: Anything else you want to say, Jody, about how you feel five years on?
1: Maybe just that, you know, we weren't after Harvey Weinstein. We weren't in pursuit of a worldwide movement. We were just after the truth. And that's why it worked. That's why it worked. We just had this singular focus in documenting what really happened. And I think you have to have the faith that if you have that fidelity and pursuit of truth, other people will care. And, I mean, I'm very, very mindful of what you're saying about defamation laws in Australia. We've heard about that from our colleagues. It, it really is. Um, I understand what you're saying about about how challenging it is to operate um, in that environment. But I guess the thing that I would say is that, you know, in this era when the truth seems challenged, it only grows more valuable and it only grows more important. And we want this story to be remembered as a tale about how, even in moments of great doubt, the truth really matters and people really do care.
0: What a wonderful place to end the conversation. Jody and Megan, thank you so much for your time. Oh,
1: thank you. Thanks for the great questions. questions.
0: This episode of The Drop was produced by Chi Wong with technical support from Cormac Lally. If you enjoyed listening to the show, check out some of our other episodes on your favorite podcast app. Make sure to recommend it to a friend. I'm Osman Faruqi. See you next week.